case you're wondering if Dobby was shy, now you know that he's not. So feel free to greet him anytime. I think he's going to work out great in Jamaica. Thank you, Lord, brother, for your testimony. We're going to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It is a difficult book in a lot of ways. Uh, as far as trying to figure it out, we've been telling you that over and over again, and I'm not going to pretend that uh, I can exposit so clearly, and, and even the testimony of the commentators that I read on this uh, are of the same mindset, that it's difficult sometimes to know the posture that um, Solomon or whoever Koaleth is, which means the teacher or the preacher, um, is the main point is that he's conveying to us the wisdom that he sees from his vantage point under the sun. So we're going to read verse 11 and go down to verse 15. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless, or vanity of vanities. 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. God has given them under the sun May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. I was in New York City one year. Um, I had a relative visiting from New Zealand. I never met him before, and he had come to America for the first time, and he wanted to see the Big Apple. And I had very little acquaintance with New York City at the time, so I contacted a friend who was on my football team uh, who lived not too far from the city, and I said, his name was Wally. I said, Wally, could you uh, accompany me with my cousin and take us around the city? He's never been there. He's coming for the first time. And I have very little acquaintance. I, don't, I wouldn't know where to go or how to go about it. So he joined us. Well, it was an opportunity for me since I had just been saved that last semester of, high, of college. And it was during the summertime break. It gave me an opportunity to spend a little time with Wally, too, and to tell him, like Davi told us, the great things the Lord had done for me, how the Lord had saved me. Well, I shared this with Wally, and I tried to press him a little bit on his need to get right with the Lord. And he flat out denied it. He said, there is no God. He was a big, tough guy. You know, there's no God. No, you don't believe that, do you? Of course I do. He says, you watch. Watch this. You, I'll, I'll prove to you that there is no God. So he backed up a little bit. He lifted up his, this is in New York City now, one of these main streets. He lifted up his eyes and his voice, and he screamed at God, cussing, swearing, F words, etc. I was flabbergasted. And he says, God, if you're really up there, if you're really true, strike me dead. Strike me dead. And then he waited and he said, see, there is no God. What do we read right here? 
when sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Boy, you know, I wouldn't want to have anybody take that test and say, God, strike me dead if you're there. Because who knows what God could possibly do. There was an atheist. He was actually the president of the atheist club. This is a true story. And he used to often go and mock the Christians and especially those that would go out in the streets and proclaim the gospel, he, he would go and sometimes he would bring some of his atheist club members with him and he would be heckling them, mocking them, jeering them, whoever there would be. Well, he said again out loud to everybody, if God is true, may he strike me dead. He would use that line all the time. If God is true, have him strike me dead. Strike me dead. Well, amazingly, when he died the president of the atheist club, when he died, now this sounds almost extremely phenomenal, but his casket was laid out in the cemetery about to be buried, lightning struck and cut that casket in half. Strike me dead. Who would want to test God in that way? Well, anyway, because God does not execute punishment upon evil immediately or maybe in your lifetime people seem to think that they can get away with things and that god can't really be concerned or interested he's not offended or affected by anything that i do therefore people want to take advantage of that someone said the absence or i actually wrote this the absence or delay of immediate retribution fosters a false security that assumes divine indifference. There's an assumption that God is indifferent to my actions. No matter what I do, if I live evilly, if I'm a liar, if I steal, whatever I do, God, there's no God that's interested, even if he's there. He's passively ignorant or unconcerned about what I do. You know, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt... Moses was called to go up to Mount Sinai. And he went up there 40 days. And the children of Israel were getting anxious. And they says, Moses delays his coming. Where is he? Why hasn't he returned? You remember we were reading our brother Harrison read about Jesus saying, don't let your heart be troubled. And he goes on to say, the world isn't going to see me anymore because I'm going away. But you see me. You see, the children of Israel couldn't see Moses and where he was. But praise God, Jesus says to us, his people, about our other Moses, the greater than Moses, but you see me. Isn't that amazing how that we can see God with spiritual eyes? The Bible says that we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 2 says, we see him crowned with glory and honor. That's the faith and confidence that we have, that we see Jesus. We may not have the eyesight like a Stephen and actually behold him literally, but we have the spiritual eyesight that we can behold him all the time. Do we sense the Lord's presence in our lives? Do we walk quorum deo is the word in Latin that we are always in the presence of the Lord. 
The Bible says there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 11.21 says the wicked will not be unpunished. But because sentence against an evil work is not executed immediately, then the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Jesus says in Luke 6.25, Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. See, emphasis of the worldly people is that on the now, the here in the now. But Jesus says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall both mourn and weep. You know, in the book of Revelation chapter 6, we have those that are under the altar, those that were martyred, those that died for the name of Christ. And they saw the, the, um, the violence. They saw the, the way in which God's people were, were beaten and tortured and persecuted. And they're crying out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Revelation 6.10. We kind of feel, don't we, the same way? How long, O Lord, are you going to be <clears throat> tolerant toward what transpires in this world? Sometimes it's very difficult, and we haven't had a lot of things before our literal eyes, although we may see it on our computers, we may see it on the television screen, but we don't literally stand in the presence of people having their heads chopped off or seeing bombs uh, unrighteously dropped in our neighborhood and people being blown up in all kinds of persecution that goes on a- around the world all the time. But the day is coming, brothers and sisters, when it will finally, that prayer will be answered, how long, O oh Lord? You know, God's long-suffering is sometimes difficult for us to be forbearing with we wonder lord when are you going to intervene when are you going to stop this and it just seemed to go on and on and on and because sentence against the sin by our heavenly father is not executed upon the world they take advantage of this divine silence if we can call it that You know, in the book of Timothy, I found it interesting that you have examples about Paul talking about something happening now and then how it will be assessed later. For instance, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 118 about Onesiphorus. He says, the Lord grant unto him that he might have mercy of the Lord in that day. Why? Because he often visited me in prison and he refreshed my spirit. Now, Onesiphorus got no, like, thank you from God, so to speak. He wasn't patted on the back in this world by God. There wasn't, like, some sort of, like, thank you very much, Onesiphorus. Thank you for serving my servant Paul in prison. But this is what Paul says, the Lord grant unto him that he may have mercy of the Lord in that day. In other words, that what he has done would be recognized and observed and that would be taken into account. Not that God would miss anything, but he's glad he can say that his labor is not in vain, that there's a future ahead for that. 
in contrast to that, in the same book of 2 Timothy 4, we have a man named Alexander the coppersmith who could possibly have been mingled in with God's people. He, Paul says about him, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm or much evil. He says, the Lord reward him according to his works. That's what's going to happen someday. The Lord is going to reward according to his works. Or the Lord is going to bless and be merciful to those who, like Anisiphorus, serve the Lord in this dark world that seems so distant, doesn't it, from heaven and from, from God himself. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. That's how we should be living, in reverence before God. God's eye is upon you. Remember that song by, uh, I think it was uh, in the 80s or 90s, Beth Midler? I wasn't a radio listener at all back in those days. I, had, I was out of touch, you could say. But I did have a job, and I would go into convenience stores. That was a part of my, my occupation, to deliver product and sell product and so on. And I would hear that song by Beth Beth Midler, and I think she's the one who sang it at least. When your life is about to start, God is watching. When you have a shattered heart, God is watching you. When you don't need to use force, God is watching you. When you don't ever feel remorse, God is watching you. When you hide your head in the sand, God is watching you. When you won't reveal yourself, God is watching you. When you believe enough to die, God is watching you. When you say your last goodbye, God is watching you. And I used to listen to that and I'd say, wow, this is in right now blaring in through the store. God is watching you. I almost felt like saying, did you hear that, everybody? God is watching you. There's nothing that escapes his eyes. Wow. How would our lives be different if we realized that God's eye was upon me and you all the time? I think we might conduct ourselves a little differently, or at least with more cautious, possibly, caution. But what a respectful thing to be able to have that sense that God is watching you. And it's not a watching, and I don't want to portray it as some kind of like, he's just waiting to find us trip up, or he's just waiting for us to step out of line. No, that's not the point. I think the watching is a watching of watchfulness, carefulness. His eye is upon us for good. Doesn't he say that about Israel, Jerusalem? And certainly it would be true of us, that we are the apple of what? His eye. His eye. God is watching you. Don't ever feel alone, brothers and sisters. We always think of God's protection, praise the Lord. The Lord encamps around about them that fear him. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In all those wonderful passages that give us this assurance, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But how about the thought of he's watching you? Jesus says, the world sees me, won't see me, but you see me. What a difference. That's why the wicked take advantage of God's silence, if you will. Whereas for us, we're hearing the voice of the good shepherd. There's no silence for us. The Lord is speaking to us. See that you refuse not him that speaketh from heaven, Hebrews chapter 12 says. 
How is he speaking to you and me? Do we hear his voice? Are we walking in communion with the Lord so that we can say the Lord is speaking to me? I hope so that we have that kind of intimate relationship with the Lord. It's not worth hiding anything from God because Jesus says there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed. God seems to us to delay in punishing the guilty because we behold one little portion of the course of his providence. Could we take a more, more comprehensive view? Anomalies would disappear and we should see the end of these men. Remember Psalm 73, where the psalmist is irked by the fact of the prosperity of the wicked. Look at how they live, how debauched their lives are. They have no chains on them. They're, they, they prosper. They, they seem to be doing well in this world, and yet they hate God and they have no life for him whatsoever. And the psalmist is saying almost, I'm jealous. I'm not enjoying the things that they are. And he's looking at, of course, from a very superficial standpoint. He's irked by it, how he saw the wicked prospering says in verse 15, when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. Till, till what? Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. See, if we put too much emphasis on time and this life, we're going to miss the boat, if you will. And it wasn't until he gets into the sanctuary that he's able to say, ah, I see the big picture. I see the end of the game. I see the final steps of this life and where they go on unto. And that's what really mattered to him. The wicked, they seem like they're prospering. Verse 13 says, Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. We have to trust that God's a just God. And if he's permissive towards what he allows, then we have no answers to that. Someone the other day texted me, and um, I think he's new in the faith, and, and he's certainly trying his best to understand spiritual things. He's new to the Bible, and... Uh, uh, apparently, he's trying to share his faith with others. And he said, I don't know how to answer people who are saying to me, how can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? That's the $60 million question, isn't it? I wish we all had answers to that, but we don't have a, the key to the secret counsels of God. But we know that God is over all these things. And I gave a passage, I believe, in Job where, where Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good of the Lord? And shall we not receive bad? Everybody wants to receive just good. But you know, from bad, good can spring. A rose can come out of the dust of the ground. A dry and arid area. That's how God operates. Our brother was talking about the troubles that he had in his life. God uses that. This fellow that I was talking about just a minute ago here who wrote me about how do you answer people who have questions like that had said that um, I, I asked him about you know where, where his spiritual journey has uh, is, is, is been and where it was. He said, 
I got down to the very bottom, bottom of my life. And it was at that point when God began to work in my life. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to get to that level, but God humbles us before he exalts us. The Lord is near unto them that are of a contrite spirit. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the lowly. There is no escaping for sure of the judgment of God. Hitler committed suicide. I think that's the popular view. You can check with Mark Fuller on that afterwards, but I think, I think there's enough fact that he did do that. And why did he do it? Because he didn't want to face the consequences of what he did. And that's how people are. They want to escape the consequences of what they sow. They don't want to reap. And you may escape the judgment of man. You might be a Bonnie and Clyde and get through life and never get caught. I don't know. As it's been said, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time. I like to say you can't ever feel God. Uh, you can't ever stump God. You can't ever fool God at any time because God has a record of everything. Jesus says, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in their day, in the day of judgment. There was a... Children, listen up here. What is this? It's not something I go to bed with. Okay. <laughs> but there was... A, this is a true story now. This little girl, uh, sister, had a nice doll. She had got it for Christmas. And this sister didn't get a doll for Christmas. She became very envious of the fact that her sister had that doll and she wanted it very badly. Well, one night, sometime after Christmas, she went in and she stole the doll and kept the doll with her. And when the, 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 uh, the little girl was looking for her doll... She looked all over her room. She couldn't find it. She told her mother and father and her other children, uh, the doll's missing. Where is it? Well, the, the little girl that stole the doll had hid it so that no one could find it. But after a few days, the family said, something's wrong here. We got to find that doll. So the one who stole the doll said, uh-oh, I got to do something. So what the girl did she literally snuck out in the nighttime, got a, a shovel. She was only like nine years old, and she dug a hole in the ground, and she dropped the, the doll in it, covered the doll up with dirt. So when the search went on in the home, no doll was found. And she felt relieved, like, ah, I'll never get caught now. The, the, the doll's out of sight, out of on, underground, no problem. She thought she was in the clear. The winter came, then the spring came, and as Brother Todd could tell you, things start to pop up from the ground. Guess what? You know what was inside that doll? There were seeds. Seeds were in the ground. So in springtime, suddenly these things are starting to pop out of the ground. And guess what? When they all popped up, the stalk showed all the figures of the doll perfectly with the hands with the head and everything and they said that is strange guess what they dug up the doll in the dirt and there was the doll she was caught renee she took the doll and tried to hide it from everybody 
You see, the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. So not, we should never, and Christians especially, should never take advantage of the fact of, well, I'm never going to get caught. No one's going to know. It doesn't matter if anybody knows, really, because whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. That's why oftentimes I want to restrain myself from judging somebody sometimes because the Bible says God is able to make, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. That's the key, that every one of us have an account to give to our master. It even says that about the servants, the slaves, that the way in which they would operate. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So in other words, you do in secret what God will reward in the open. You know, when Pharaoh um, had all of these plagues come upon him, while the plague was active, he was saying, okay, Moses, go ahead, take, take these people away. Go worship your God. But then he would say, Moses, please pray that God would, re- would take these frogs back, that they would be removed, that this would be removed. And when things calm down, it says there in, in Exodus 8.15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. I heard a doctor give a, a, a message one, one time up in, um, I think it was in Montreal or, or Toronto, and um, he said that there was a um, sort of a test that was done in a hospital a large hospital in Germany. And uh, of those that made professions of faith on their deathbeds, but recovered. And they were interviewed later and searched out, and it was discovered that like less than 5% of all those who made a deathbed profession of faith, but ended up surviving death, turned out they have no interest in the things of God at all. Like Pharaoh, they got relief and their hearts became hardened. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Coleth is looking at all this and says, I can't figure this out. How this happens and why this happens. But I want to draw your attention to verse 15 especially. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Now, who in their right mind doesn't want to have an enjoyable life? Sometimes Christians don't have enjoyable lives. How could that be? Um, I know there are various ways in which a Christian can have an unhappy life, a miserable life, and troubles that could come upon them. But I'm talking about something that you may do that may make you less Enjoy, enjoying. I have seen the, the legalistic fundamentalists crash big time when they wanted to abstain from so many things in this world because they wanted to be so dedicated to Christ, a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake, but it went to the extreme that it could not be maintained. That's dangerous. 
That's dangerous. Look out. So I think Solomon, wisdom here is to be understood in this light. I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. Remember, he says about those who die untimely deaths, he talks about not being overmuch righteous. That overmuch righteous could be an over-the-top extremism, fanaticism, out-of-control discipline, so to speak, and I, I mean in a, in a radicalized way, that really is not what God intends for you. There are things in this life that are enjoyable and should be enjoyed. We're not commanded to enjoy them, but I think we need to come to our senses and we need to be wise on how we order our lives. What things do you enjoy in life? I, I know it's more than just reading the Bible and praying and going to church. Okay, let's, let's be factual about it, you know. You might like Seth's cooking, which I love, those briskets. I can't wait to get my teeth in them again. Um, <laughs> amusements, entertainment. I mean, let's be honest with, about that. These are things that are around us. We don't necessarily have to tag all of these things as evil. But what we got to watch, I love sports. I like sports. I like watching a football game, basketball game, baseball. But anyway, um, uh, I like to see athleticism in, in, uh, in play. I, I like to see the athletes. Uh, figure skating even is, is pretty interesting. And on and on, we could go. And you, you have your taste for this or you have your taste for that. And I'm saying that this is sort of the mindset that Solomon is proclaiming here about the enjoyment of life. Now, it's all to be done under the umbrella of Christ. We should never dismiss Jesus in anything that we ever go to or see or observe. We should always sense that we, we are in the presence of God. And again, that his eyes are upon us. We live corum Deo in the presence of God. And he sees everything that we do. do, do. He sees a black ant on a black rock on a black night. Listen to what I think John Gill was the one who wrote this. The objector adds, as Solomon had said, that the worldling's pursuits are vanity. But then he commends mirth. M-I-R-T-H. What does mirth mean? Gladness, joyfulness, pleasure. How could that be? We're reading in Ecclesiastes 8, 14 and 15 may be explained as teaching a cheerful, thankful use of God's gifts under the sun. That is, not making them the chief good as sensualists do, which forbid, but in the fear of God, opposed to the abstinence of the self-righteous ascetic and of the miser. I know that language is a little tough to grasp, not making them the chief, chief good as sensualists do. What's the sensualist? The Bible talks about the unconverted as brute beasts, as natural, who consume the pleasures of lusts because that's all they have. If, they're only, if you can only live for one world, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die and that, because that's all you have. But the Christian has something more. 
There's a danger on, on both sides. You've heard the expression, don't be so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. It usually is the other way around for most people. They're too, so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. It's possible that someone could be mistaken on what is heavenly in making all these rules for themselves in this lifetime that's really a restraint, a natural restraint to the body and mind that God has created us with. And I think those are the ones that are going to finish the course, finish the race. And I'd hate to admit that some of my best friends that I've had in the past that I can say were so dedicated and so fervent for Christ. One brother passed out about, on an average, 10,000 gospel tracts a month. He hired buses to get people to come into religion, to, to gospel services. He read the Bible. He had no television, no radio. He read the Bible fervently, memorized many passages of scriptures, would not allow himself any kind of, of enjoyable pleasure, so to speak, of this world. But he ended up burning himself out. I hate to admit, but he went into a homosexual lifestyle. Another one who would read the New Testament in Greek, learn Greek and even the Hebrew, would study for hours and hours a day, had six children, uh, took care of them only on a minimal basis financially, worked part-time so that he could give his time to reading, praying, and preaching. Meanwhile, his family, they could, I don't even think they were able to buy diapers to take care of the babies. That person crashed as well, divorced his wife, got into alcoholism, etc., etc. This is sad. This is sad. Why? Because I don't think, and this is where I think I personally have been helped from the book of Ecclesiastes. I've mentioned that before, and I think this is one of these passages, and I don't want us to take this and run with it without some kind of restraints that we would find from other passages in the scripture that would balance this thing off because we know that the the philosophy of the unconverted is eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die that's not christianity okay we live and breathe christ like like we were we were singing before christ is my all in all for me to live as christ and to die is gain Anyway, here again is another practical portion out of the book of, the, of, of Ecclesiastes that we can glean from. And hopefully we can take that truth in with us when we leave this place and throughout the rest of our life to remember that God's eyes are upon us, that we live in the presence of the Lord all the time. And yet at the same time, there are things in this life that God has given to us, the beauty of nature. People going up to Vermont, you don't have to go that far. They can stay right around here and see the beauty of, of creation around us. Amazing things that are right in front of us that we oftentimes ignore. And if we become too ascetic, that's the warning here. That's what Gill is saying, that there is a danger about opposing, uh, uh, forbid, but in the fear of God, uh, opposed to the abstinence of self-righteous asceticism. See, a person can become so supposedly godly, they think, but it's really a self-righteous asceticism. And it will make you ultimately miserable because you will not endure. We can only be like Jesus up to a certain point. We don't have a sinless nature. We don't, we don't have the calling that Jesus has on our life like he did. 
And I'm not saying that we don't follow Jesus 100%. Of course we do. But let's recognize the fact that we are still in a body. We are in the world. And there are things that the Lord has given us in this lifetime so that we don't have to retreat from it. We do retreat, of course, from sin. Scripture says, be not entangled with this world. We can be engaged in it, but not entangled with it. So these are things that we all have to work out practically in our life. What do I allow in my life? What do I not allow in my life? How can I have these things and not divorce myself from my communion with Christ in recognizing that his eyes are in every place and that he sees all that I do and say? May the Lord bless his word. Let's close in prayer. And we're going to close with a, a piano song. Our sisters are going to come up and pray. Josiah and, and Mickey's their voices are not strong, and they got a little bit of a thing going on. They don't want to uh, pass anything on. So let's close in prayer, and we will sing. Uh, it's going to be on the screen. Yes, this, uh, the um, words will be on the screen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your beloved Son. Thank you for the truth that is in Jesus. Lord, help us to order our lives Aright, O oh God, give us wisdom, Lord, to know how we ought to live and move and have our being in this world. Give us, O oh God, holy desires for thyself. Lord, for the most part, Lord, we tend to be more worldly than we do heavenly. And Father, may we not misconstrue what your word would guide us to, to do. Help us, Lord, to live in the spirit and walk in the spirit. Help us too, Lord, Jesus, as you said, the world doesn't see me and won't see me, but you see me. Lord, help us as you keep your eye on us. Might we keep our eye on you as well so that, Lord, we can stay in that constant communion with yourself. Even though, Lord, there are things in this world that you allow us and expect us to enjoy. As your word says, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the power, under the bondage of anything. So, Lord, just guide our lives aright. Help us, Lord, to know how to enjoy the things, Lord, that you provide to us in this world, that we may ultimately give you all the glory and praise and thanks as we worship you in spirit and truth today. In Jesus' precious and worthy name, amen.